Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to see all of you. If you're visiting us, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors, and I'd love to get to know you, so come and say hello after the service. Um, And hello to our online community as well. We're uh, glad you're with us uh, worshiping today. Um, The the Women of the Genealogy of Jesus, that's this series we're going to be uh, diving into, and it's going to lead us right up to uh, and into the uh, Advent season. And uh, so uh, if you know which five women are in the genealogy, you know the fifth, and you know then it makes a lot of sense that it leads us into Advent. So uh, we're looking forward to that. We will be taking a break uh, for one week where we're going to welcome uh, Ray and Kathy Cobb here who are uh, international workers um, serving in Senegal. They're going to be home, and we can't wait uh, to see them, to greet them, to hear from them. Uh, So that'll be coming up in a a couple of weeks' time. Um, Before we get into today's passage, uh, however, we are going to be doing some membership welcomes. So uh, these individuals, these nine individuals, uh, have gone through our membership process where uh, they fill out some sort of biographical information. They, they share their story. Uh, they've, they would have already been to a membership class uh, with me. And then they meet with one of our elders, and they just get to kind of share their story uh, there as well. And then we get to officially welcome them into membership of the church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the names. Uh, they're going to be behind me as well. And I'm just going to have those nine people uh, stand just so that you can see who they are. And remain standing, and what we're going to do is then we're going to pray for them. So uh, I see Taylor is here. Taylor Daly, why don't you stand, brother? Uh, what it, yeah. <laughs> Taylor, we're giving you a really special clap all on your own, but what I'm going to suggest is we wait and clap after the ninth person, so otherwise we're going to be here all day. So uh, uh, Mike and Lisa Evanson, they're usually at the back there. Oh, they're up there. Hey, Mike and Lisa, welcome, guys. Great. Uh, Luella Johnson, there's Luella, hey Luella. Uh, Owen Johnson, unrelated, uh, where's Owen? Uh, there he is, okay, perfect, can see you, excellent. Uh, Bob Klassen is right here, uh, Lawrence and Adele Lofgren are right here, and Julia Milstead, usually over here, there we are, hi Julia. Uh, so let's give them a round of applause, welcome. And uh, these nine individuals represent some people that have both been here for a long time and have been here for a while, and some are really quite new. And so this is a great group of people. We love all of you. Uh, Official welcome on behalf of the pastoral staff and our board of elders and the rest of the congregation uh, to official membership here. And I'd just love to pray for you. So um, why don't you just kind of, church family, just reach a hand out towards whoever's closest to you, and we'll, um, we'll pray together. Father, I just want to thank you so much for these individuals. I just want to lift before you uh, Taylor, and I want to lift before you uh, Mike and Lisa, Luella and Owen, Bob, Lawrence and Adele, and Julia. And I want to thank you, Father, how you have uniquely shaped each one of these individuals, how you have known them since the creation of the world, Uh, and they are caught in your gaze and your sight. You see them and you love them. And I want to thank you that each one of them, as followers of Jesus, have been adopted into the family of God, the the worldwide family of believers uh, who are brothers and sisters in Christ and who they, therefore, are sons and daughters of the living God. 
I thank you that they are uh, eternally loved. I thank you that they are adopted, that they are forgiven, they are redeemed. And they, along with all of us, have been invited into this dynamic relationship that exists at the center of the universe, the, the, the dynamic relationship of the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we get welcomed into that as believers in Christ. And I want to thank you that they also are here in this specific uh, version of church at this specific place uh, right now at Seven Oaks. And I just want to pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to bless our community through their presence as they serve you in the ways in which they feel called. And may they also be nourished and built up by the community here as we love them as brothers and sisters. Uh, and so, God, we just want to give thanks this morning and ask for a fresh blessing and a fresh uh, impartation of your spirit upon them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have a membership. You can sit down. I have membership certificates for you as well, and there's too many of you to go and find before the service. So come and find me, and I'll give these to you um, uh, after the service. Uh, one other just quick thing before we dive into uh, the message today. Um, Holy Spirit Encounter coming up a couple of weeks from now, uh, Friday evening for a couple of hours, all day Saturday, uh, finishing, I believe, around 5 p.m. Uh, lunch provided, a couple of coffee breaks, $30, that's all it is, just to cover the cost of, of food and, and, and some other things like that. Um, if you haven't signed up yet, please do. Uh, we, we need to let our caterers know soon how many we're catering for. And so uh, deadline is October 30th, please. Uh, for signing up. Um, it's going to be great. Um, we don't just put these things on the church calendar randomly. Uh, they are things we believe are really, really important for all of us. Uh, the same as soul care, um, where I believe the Lord is leading us and asking us to move into and stretch in order to encounter Jesus more profoundly through His Spirit. Many of you I know pray for renewal and revival, and that's great. I'm so glad you pray for that. That's wonderful. But as well as praying for that, we actually have to put ourselves into environments where we can encounter God. And these are some of the ways that we're trying to do that. So if you were to ask me, Jamie, do you think I should go? Uh, my answer is yes. Should I sign up? Yes. That's it. Okay? And if you want to know why, come and talk to me. I'll be happy to tell you further. This morning, uh, we are starting then the series, The Women of the Genealogy of Jesus. And when we say that, what we're talking about is the genealogy or the list of names or the family tree that shows up at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. You also find one on the third uh, chapter of, of Luke. And that's what we're taking a look at. And for us modern readers of the Bible, it can be a little bit strange that a book of the Bible or the entire New Testament will begin with a random list of names. It's not random, but it might seem that way to us. As a modern reader, if, if I was to say to you who's never read the New Testament before, you should read the New Testament, and you say, well, where should I dive in? I said, well, just start at the beginning and read to the end. And you opened it for the first time, and you saw that list of names. You might think, it's weird. Why is there not some kind of preface or some kind of introduction or, or the beginning of a narrative or story? Why is there just this list of names, most of whom I've never heard of before? I know one or two. Why is that here? If, if we're honest, I imagine most of us probably skip that bit. I know you do. When you read Matthew, you probably skip that bit. Because we want to get to the middle of chapter one, where we start to get the stories, like the Christmas stuff that's all cool about the birth of Jesus and so on. Why do we want to read 
a list of names. Well, the reason we find it difficult or odd is because names of our descendants just aren't really that important to us, particularly in the Western world. It might be interesting. People do family tree work all the time. It might be interesting to you, but it doesn't really change the way you live in any meaningful way in the world. Well, um, some other cultures of the world, uh, it's a little bit different. Where you come from, what family you come from, what tribe you're a part of is actually quite important. And in Matthew's day, it wasn't only quite important, it was centrally important to your identity, your lineage, uh, your descendants, your tribe, your life in Israel. It was absolutely centrally important. So for Matthew to begin his gospel with a genealogy may be weird to us, but it was like a drum roll as he led into his gospel, because this was everything, trying to authenticate the line that Jesus was part of, said a lot to Jewish people. One of the fascinating parts of this genealogy, however, is that there are five women that show up. That is actually not very common in ancient genealogies. Your family line usually goes through the father's side of the family, because these were patriarchal societies. So it's odd that women show up. And not only is it odd that five women show up, but actually these five women, two certainly, maybe up to four of them, were Gentiles. They weren't even women who were part of the family of Israel, the chosen people. What's even more weird is that three of them, and maybe four of them, even have dubious reputations regarding morality and ethics. And yet they show up in the, in, in the family line of Messiah Jesus. There must be good reasons that they are there. Now, we can say a lot about that, and we're going to over these kind of five weeks. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the stories of these five women. We're going to dive into the scriptural passages that talk about their stories and try to understand. So the first woman that shows up is Tamar. And Tamar is maybe, uh, maybe the one that's the least well-known. So Matthew chapter 1, 1 to 3, I'm just going to read this uh, really quickly. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, two sons, by Tamar, there she is. And Perez, so it goes through Perez's line, not Zerah's line. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and, and, and on it goes. So pretty early on in the genealogy, we have Tamar, the first woman that is mentioned. And Tamar gives birth to two sons, Perez and Zerah, as we mentioned, and the father is Judah. And Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob who became the heads of the tribes of Israel. Judah is probably one of the names. Of, oh, yeah, I know Judah. I, I, I know who that is. The thing is, though, church family, Tamar was not Judah's wife. They didn't meet somewhere and, and fall in love and have this wonderful love story and go and have a honeymoon on the Mediterranean coast and save up for their first home and, and, and get pregnant and, and do up the nursery and have a gender reveal party. Is it going to be blue smoke? Is it going to be pink smoke? There was none of that. No, actually... Tamar, get this, was his daughter-in-law. Ooh, 
Yes, friends, it gets weird. So we're going to take a look at the story of Tamar, and it's found in Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to read the first 11 verses uh, starting off, coming behind me. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to, uh, to read along with me. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son whose name was Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she named him Shelah. So Judah has married a Canaanite woman, had three kids, three sons. She was in Kezib when she bore him. The boys have now grown up. Judah, verse 6, took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, the thirdborn, for he feared that he too would die like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. God's word to us today. What a story, eh? So this chapter, chapter 38, is found, and, and I know there's a lot of information, and you've got to kind of lean in with me this morning. Um, it's found, actually, in a section of the book of Genesis that's actually all about Joseph. If you know the way, the, way that, um, uh, the book of Genesis is structured, you know the first 11 verses... Uh, first 11 chapters, rather, are, are all about sort of four major events. And then from 12 onwards to the end, there are about four major people. You have the story of Abraham, you have the story of Isaac, you have the story of Jacob, and the story of Joseph. You do not have the story of Judah. So this is a bit of a rabbit trail. We're in the story of Joseph, actually, and then we rabbit trail into this story about Judah. Well, what had just happened in chapter 37 is that Joseph's brother, including Judah, had just sold Joseph into slavery. Now, if you're fairly new to, the, to Christianity and the Bible, maybe you don't know the story of Joseph. I, I think most of you probably do. But even if you don't, or, or, or you're an unbeliever, um, a lot of people know it through Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Right? So they know that story, the play. This is what we're talking about here. I don't have time to recount the story for you. But what's happened is they've just sold Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, into slavery to Midianite traders who would take him off and sell him in Egypt. And do you know whose idea it was? Judah's. It was Judah's idea to do that. And then we get into chapter 38, and Judah leaves his brothers, moves to a different area, and settles near a friend of his called Hira. Now, why would, they, why would they do that? Well, well they, they kind of all were rich, wealthy people with lots of flocks and so on, and they couldn't just stay very close to each other. They had to find pasture land, and so Judah had gone to find pasture land, and here he is. He finds a wife who bears him three sons, and then the three sons grow up, and he goes and finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and that's Tamar. 
we learn that Ur isn't a good guy and he ends up dying. So in that culture, there was a well-established practice of the ancient world that if, if, a, a, if a widow is left childless, a man dies without giving his wife children, there was this principle that it was a responsibility of the next born son to, um, to, to marry her and provide for her, and principally the way you do that is that you have children with her, okay? And, and, and it might sound a kind of weird to us, but, but that's what was, was such a kind of a, a staple rule of the ancient world. It actually gets adopted into Israelite law later on. There's no law yet, of course, until Moses. But it gets adopted into Israelite law, and it's known of the principle of Levite marriage. And the idea is this. If a widow was left without children, um, particularly male children, she was in a very, very, very precarious position. She was very vulnerable. There's no one to take care of her. She can't go and get a job in the factory. Uh, there's no social assistance for her. There's no, you know, government-funded um, care home for her to go into. Like, she would become destitute, would end up begging, maybe selling herself into prostitution, if she was young enough, to get by. So it was a really, really dangerous thing to be a childless widow. And so there was this practice where, well, somebody needs to take care of her. And so this is why they had this kind of leave right marriage piece. It was a normal thing to do in those ancient societies. The issue, however, is that the next son, Onan, who does what he's supposed to do, decides that he's on board to enjoy some sex, but is not in, on board to um, fulfill any kind of responsibility. So he practices a, a kind of a form of proto-contraception. And therefore, Tamar never gets pregnant. And so she's vulnerable still. She might still become destitute. What future does she have in that hostile kind of environment for her? As well as taking care of her, there's also uh, kind of the issues of inheritance. And there's the issue of, of keeping the dead man's memory alive. Remember genealogy, I said how important it was to that culture in a way that it isn't today. And so Onan does not do the right thing. And the reason he doesn't is because it's not in his interest to. Because the, the firstborn birthright and inheritance would now go to the child he has on behalf of his brother with Tamar. But if she doesn't get pregnant, the birthright inheritance will go to him. And so selfishly, he does not provide for Tamar and does what he does. She remains uh, without and, uh, and, and that's kind of the story. Now, we good so far? Let's stop and pause here for a second. If you stop and think about it, Onan is doing something pretty similar to his father, likely. There's a bit of a, a family sin pattern going on here, I think. You see, Judah, in his own family situation, may have felt like things were pretty good for him. Who knows... Um, what number of birth order of the 12 Judah was? Anybody know? Fourth. He was the fourth. Okay, so Reuben was the firstborn. Okay, Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, second and third, slaughtered a bunch of people in Shechem. 
it may have been that Judah's thinking, those three, my three older brothers have kind of been disqualified probably from the birthright. And so, therefore, you know, I, I'm next in line to, to receive this. He may have. Um, we, we know that this was an issue because at the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob is, is denouncing, uh, denouncing Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, uh, at the end, when he's kind of doing the blessing and so on, he denounces them for what they did. So maybe Judah's thinking, I'm in line, except for that favored little rat of a brother of mine, Joseph. Because maybe what dad's going to do is dad is going to skip all of us anyway and just give the birthright to Joseph. Do you remember whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery? It was Judah. So maybe what's going on here is kind of a similar sort of deal. What if we go back another generation to grandfather Jacob? We all know how he postured for the birthright from Esau. It seems like what we might have here is a family sin pattern coming down the line. One of those scriptural examples of how the sins of the father passes down the generations. It's why at Soul Care, if you've ever been to Soul Care or you've ever read the Soul Care book, one of the seven principles is family sin patterns in our, fa- in our family lines. We look at that. Why? Because it's serious. It has impact. We see it in our world. But are there any scriptural examples? I think so. And maybe that's what's going on here. So God is not pleased with what Onan is doing, and he ends up dying just like his older brother. And Judah says to Tamar, you should live in your father's house as a widow. I've lost two sons. What if Shela dies as well? You go and live in your father's house because Shela's too young for you. We'll wait until he grows up. And Judah is concerned. Maybe he feels like it's punishment for what he did to Joseph. Maybe he feels like his family is cursed. And in those days, as so often throughout history, women get blamed for things. Uh, Widows who were prone to be widows, widowed more than once, were sometimes accused of of being engaged in witchcraft. So maybe there's some of that. I I don't know. We're going to read on the story starting at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she put off her widow's garment, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. That's like a seal, signet like a seal. Everybody had their own personal seal. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adolamite, to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. And he asked the townspeople, where's the temple prostitute who is at a name by the wayside? But they said, no prostitute has been here. 
So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Judah replied, "Uh, well, let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we're going to be laughed at. You see, I sent a kid and you couldn't find her. You can see what he's doing. So Judah now tragically loses his wife. He's lost two sons and a wife. And he's mourned for a death, and after the time of mourning is over, he goes up to take part in sheep shearing. It's obviously that time of year. I said he had lots of flocks. Now, um, we can't know this for sure, but it may have been that Judah engaged in pagan worship, possibly. Sheep shearing was often the time, much like the sowing and reaping of the harvest, where what would happen is they would, uh, pagans would carry out pagan rites to sort of encourage and uh, encourage the gods and appeal to the gods that they would have fertility in the land and fertility in the herd and so on. And so what they would often do is that women, temple prostitutes, who were devoted to some local goddess like Anat or Asherah, would dress in a veil, symbolic of being the bride of the god Baal or El, and would essentially reenact the divine marriage between the gods, in an attempt to secure the fertility of the land and the prosperity of the herd. Now, it doesn't say that Judah engaged in sex for the purposes of pagan worship. It may have been that he just engaged in sex for the purpose of sex. However, later he does ask, where is the temple prostitute who is here? So there's a fair chance that Judah was engaging in pagan worship. And what we have in the story here is Tamar seeing that the writing's on the wall for her. Shela, Judah's third son, had grown up and had not been given to her in marriage. She was now threatened to become destitute, a widow with no hope. So she takes things in her own hands. She uh, decides to try to trick Judah into sleeping with her and engineers a situation where she would have his seal and his staff, which is sort of like the modern equivalent of having his driver's license, right? She's got his driver's license. And and she says, you know, I'll give you it back when you send the animal in payment uh, for, for what we did. And then she disappears. She puts her widow's clothes back on, presumably goes back to her father's house, Uh, and continues to live as a widow there, waiting for an opportune moment where she's going to confront Judah for what he was doing to her. She's taken things in her own hand. She is taking a huge risk. This could absolutely blow up in her face. And it would be easy to accuse Tamar of deception and trickery, and sure, that's part of it. But this is a desperate woman who faces a really uncertain future And she lives in a world that's very hostile to her. And so let's read the end of the story. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she's pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out, or when she was being brought out, uh, she sent word to her father-in-law, it is the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. 
When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in the womb. While she's in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a crimson thread, saying, this one came out first. But just then he drew back his hand, and the other brother came out and said, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the crimson thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. And uh, that's the end of the story. So three months later then, Tamar is, is pregnant, and she's reported to be pregnant, and she gets condemned to death as a prostitute. Church family, there's no other way to say this except that Judah's a scumbag. Right? I mean, actually, there is another way to say that. But it would be even less appropriate for me to say it in church. There's a number of different ways we could say that. I mean, what a hypocrite. Condemning someone to death for what you did? You stand self-condemned, Judah. This is an example of a man with power yielding it wickedly, oppressing a woman with the worst kind of double standards. And we've seen that many, many times throughout the world, haven't we? It's a wicked story. It's a wicked thing that men with power do and have done throughout history. But Tamar remains courageous. She's got nothing to lose. She's either put to death or she lives a destitute life. Nothing is looking good for her, so she fights for herself and her unborn children. She comes out as the courageous hero in the story, I think. She essentially says, the guy I slept with is the owner of these, Judah. Boom. She pulls out the signet and the staff, the driver's license. There you go, buddy. And to Judah's credit, actually, he humbles himself, and he makes the great statement, she's more right than I, because I didn't do what I was supposed to do for her. She is more righteous than I. And he could have handled that differently. I mean, he was a powerful, powerful man. He could have easily done away with her. That could have gone completely differently. He could have continued to wield power, but he actually accepts the confrontation. And although it doesn't explicitly say, I think God is all over this story, sovereignly bringing conviction to the heart of Judah. And in a few chapters' time, we're going to see a transformed Judah. Um, We don't have time to go into the story now, but later on, when the brothers are all actually bowing down before Joseph, which was Joseph's dream, um, Judah actually puts himself on the line. Uh, It's related to going and getting the younger brother, Benjamin, to bring him here. Like I said, we don't have time to go into that story. But Judah essentially says, take me as a slave in the place, uh, you know, and, uh, and he really humbles himself, and uh, we see a transformed Judah. A Judah who is trying to amend the past, make restitution of sorts for his sin. I think we can trace this transformation, the beginning of this transformation, to this moment with Tamar, where he gets confronted by her. So what about you and me? What happens when we get confronted with our sin? We all do things that we shouldn't. We all say things and make mistakes and do terrible things. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we're confronted with our sin, we've got an option. We've got a choice to make. We can resist the conviction. We can remain hard-hearted because we don't want to be outed or because of pride or whatever it is. Or we can humble ourselves and repent and make it right. And so we're going to be talking Uh, throughout this series uh, about these women as a collective, 
uh, as they're found in the genealogy, uh, maybe a little bit more about that another week. But today, uh, Tamar in the genealogy is interesting because what we have here is most likely a Gentile uh, woman with a dubious reputation finding her way into the genealogy because what she does is she actually is the one that exhibits risky faith in this story, courageous faith, to make sure what's right is done. And she's measured against one of the sons of Jacob, one of the pillars of the Old Testament, and she comes out as the one who actually rescues the family line. It's her. It's because of her that Judah's line continues, and Judah does not come off well in this story at all. And there's going to be plenty of New Testament examples where Jesus is actually going to lift up and tell stories of heroic Gentiles and faith-filled Gentiles juxtaposed against a faithless generation of Pharisaic chosen people. And so even here, even early on, we're getting more than a hint of Gentile inclusion into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have Tamar's story speaking to transformation with the themes of conviction and humility and repentance and response and making things right and instigating this, I think, in Judah's life. And those themes absolutely belong, don't they, in the genealogy of Christ. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about the line through Perez. Uh, I don't think we really have time. It's, it's kind of a, um, a sub-point, uh, a, a good one, but we don't, I don't think we really have time because I want to move into application uh, today. Um, there's actually a ton more that we could mine from this story. Uh, we've scratched the surface There is so much in here. Um, But on the one hand, it is both a disturbing story by some of its content, and it's an incredible story of faith and rescue and transformation and conviction and embracing all God's people to be part of the line of Messiah. So I want to ask you, um, are you Tamar in the story? Have you been mistreated? Are you being mistreated? Are you carrying something heavy? Let me encourage you, if that's you, God sees you. And sometimes that's all we need to know, that God sees us. You may feel left or abandoned or hopeless, but God sees you. His gaze, you are caught in his gaze. That was part of my prayer for our new members. He sees you. And just like in this story, God is at work sovereignly to bring about rescue and transformation and renewal and, 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 the, uh, and the new life in all things. And um, he, he's doing it both in your life, he's doing it in the world uh, as a whole, even though so many times it doesn't seem like it. Tamar didn't get relief immediately. She didn't know that she was going to be taken care of ultimately, and she had to express faith. And so let me encourage you, if that's you to hold on, to hold on to the promises of Jesus, to hold on to the truth of where God is taking our world. He's taking it somewhere, and he's taking your story somewhere also. So trust, have faith. Sometimes that means we have to sit and wait patiently. Other times it means God calls us to act like Tamar. The key is discernment, listening to the voice of the Spirit, learning what do I need to do in this circumstance, and if, as if I need to make another plug for a Holy Spirit encounter, uh, one of the things we're going to be doing there is actually 
trying to learn how to hear God's voice, and we're going to be talking about some of the barriers that exist in our lives that stop us hearing God's voice. We're going to be looking at that too. It takes discernment. Or are you Judah in the story? Are you the perpetrator? Are you the one who's in sin or harboring sin or resisting conviction, bristling against confrontation because of pride or for fear that you'll be outed? Friend, let me tell you to yield to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Because it isn't only what's right, it's actually liberating to you. God wants to take you to deeper places, but you've got to let go of the stuff that you hold on to. You've got to release it and confess. Allow the convicting work of the Spirit, the renewal of God in your life and His forgiveness. It is worth the humbling process. And finally, let me close by saying this. The presence of Tamar in the genealogy, and many others too, tells us that we can still have a place at the table despite our past. And if you were here last week on Saturday night when we had the praise night, you will recall we had a table down here in the front, and there were little place cards that you could write your name on, and we encourage you to come forward during worship and put your name on the table. And so you can still have a place at the table despite your past. You may feel disqualified at times, but we can all get included into that family line too as sons and daughters of the living God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's sing together. Thanks, Chantel.